It's time to give three cheers for Bidenomics and separating fungal infections of the testicles and possibly bunions. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden has been taking time out from quietly decomposing on the beach to tout the administration's signature economic program, which has been a boon to every patriotic American who loves mom and apple pie after all the other food has run out. Now, some of you have written to me to say, golly gee, hot Gandalf, with the yearly deficit up nearly 40% since government experts ruined every single thing for no reason during the pandemic, with prices up nearly 16% since the last election was rigged by corrupt news media and intelligence agencies, and with hourly wages down 5%, not to mention how high gas prices would be if I hadn't been forced to abandon my empty car by the side of the road, how can the president say his economic policies are working when all this time I thought he was dead? Well, to answer your questions quickly so I can get back to obsessively watching the Jennifer Lawrence nude scene from No Hard Feelings, I've decided to provide you with this handy Bidenomics Q&A. Q, what is Bidenomics? A, some of you may remember Reaganomics, when President Reagan cut taxes and regulations so that businesses could grow and hire workers who could then buy stuff from small businesses so that everyone was making money and could have vacations, which brought wealth to tourist locations where they hired even more workers for more money and everyone was prosperous and happy and singing and dancing around in celebration and delight. Well, that was no good. So now we have Bidenomics, where the government gives money to their friends who invest in clean fuel like fairy dust and unicorn manure. These public subsidies, technically known as graft or peculation, will be used to build gigantic windmills that create power by slaughtering birds so the birds don't block the sun and the sun can shine on solar batteries, which then provide energy and create wonderful new jobs until night falls and the entire fantastical contraption vanishes into the imaginations of the same experts who ruined everything during the pandemic. This way, instead of trickle-down economics, where people with money buy goods and services from people who need money, you now have trickle-up economics, where people with no money sit around wishing they had money, like the rich climate con men who live in the Cayman Islands, to avoid paying taxes to the climate con men in government so that the government has no money, which it then gives to the people with no money so that they now have as much money as the government, which is minus $32 trillion. Q. Wait a minute. You're saying under Bidenomics, no one has any money. A. No, no, no. If you have no money, you can't afford to buy anything. So the government prints money, which, of course, is worthless. So their prices go up, so you can't afford to buy anything. Q. If I can't afford to buy anything, how do I eat? A. Well, it's true that under Bidenomics, there are some things you can't eat, like meat or bread or food. But you can eat other good things, like your memories or the dog. You can also eat Skittles if you're a black trans person who might enjoy being castrated and having diabetes. Q. Wow. That sounds really great. Is Bidenomics the reason gas prices are going up as well? A, no, that's because of climate change. You see, 100,000 years ago, there was an ice age and glaciers covered the country. Then, about 25,000 years ago, the climate turned warm because too many prehistoric poor people were driving Flintstone-powered cars. That's when the glaciers melted and became the Great Lakes, and John Kerry had to fly his wife's private plane to Switzerland to make sure nothing like that would ever happen again and to get in some skiing. So now, gas prices are almost $4 a gallon, except in California, where a gallon is $7, but with each full tank, you get a free homeless person. Q. Now that you've explained Bidenomics, 
I think things were better under Donald Trump. Why shouldn't I just vote for him? A, because unfortunately, Donald Trump is under indictment. Q, but if things were better under Trump, why was he indicted? A, that is why. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We're in the middle of the fall of the Republic. Things raining down on us, but we're still laughing. This is the time you want to pre-order House of Love and Death, the new mystery coming out October 31st. This is my new uh, entry into the Cameron Winter series. If you have not pre-ordered this, you are holding, you are letting down the side, right? This is the stuff we talk about, about contributing to the culture. This is what I do. This is my central effort in, in life, and this is the culmination of my work. Please go out and uh, pre-order House of Love and Death. You will love it, I promise. Also, you want to subscribe to the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel. You will get exclusive content, which will be hurled through your window, wrapped in plain brown pornography, so no one will think you're getting anything untoward in your house. Uh, if you leave a comment on my YouTube channel, you will, uh, we will read it on the air if it is sufficiently hateful and bigoted. Uh, Rekindle Fitness says, commenting here because the Daily Wire up has no app has no comment section. This is a phenomenally insightful episode. I've listened to Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh for years, but only now discovering Andrew Clavin, and he's incredible. Can't believe I never listened to his shows before, so now I have a huge backlog to catch up on. I'm even more happy about my subscription to The Daily Wire. Pure value every day. Well, that was pretty hateful. We, I'm glad we put that up there. All right, let's get to today's episode, Conspiracy of Fools. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. All right, there is an idea going around on social media that conservatives are good at identifying the problems, but that's all we ever do. We just keep identifying the problems, but we never come up with solutions. This is actually not true. One of the problems we're having right now is we're going through a tragic phase in our history, and when you're in the midst of a tragic phase, there actually are no solutions, or at least there are no solutions within the system that causes the tragedy. Tragedy doesn't mean stuff that's just very, very sad. Tragedy and tragic situation is one where people are caught up in conflicting forces and passions that will lead them inexorably, inevitably, to a horrible outcome, and they can't get out of the passion. They're so wrapped up in the passion of the tragic circumstances, they grow deaf to wisdom. So people can speak wisdom but they're not going to hear it, and it's not going to sound like wisdom to the people who are caught up in the tragic passions. Give you a perfect example. March 4th, 1861, Abraham Lincoln, his first inaugural address, he says, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone, all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. So you can just imagine if there were Twitter in Lincoln's days, all the people saying, no, we are enemies and they did it first and we have to get back. And they were the ones who now we're going to finish this fight. So more than 600,000 Americans died at the hands of their fellow Americans in that war. And the war started a month after Lincoln said this. It started right away after Lincoln said this. And this was more people were killed in the Civil War, more Americans were killed in the Civil War than any other war in our history. So the question is, did Lincoln have no solution? 
Was he not speaking wisdom or was his wisdom drowned out by the tragic passions that had built up to a point where there was simply no getting out of them? It was not a human thing to pull away from the passion and the anger and the fear and the guilt that was powering people toward this horrible horrible war. Lincoln's words now in the aftermath sound like the words that are spoken at the end of a Shakespeare tragedy, you know, where somebody says, ah, now we'll bring the state back to peace. Now we'll end the feud. Now we understand what was going on, but all the characters in the play are dead. And that's the problem that sometimes when you are in a tragic situation, nobody wakes up from that situation until enough people have died. If you don't consider, uh, if you don't believe me that this is a situation that nobody wants, but nobody can get out of. Consider this. The AP just had a poll come out. 75% of Americans, 75% of Americans, that's almost like 75% of Americans don't agree about anything. 75% of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run again. 69% of Americans don't want Trump to run again. 63% of Americans will say they will not vote for Trump under any circumstances or they're unlikely to vote for him. 54% won't vote for Biden. Both men, of course, are running so far ahead of the pack in their primaries. They look inevitable, all of which translates into a situation nobody wants, but nobody knows how to get out of. And there are no solutions to a tragedy. That's the whole point of, of a tragedy. It's that it's that when you're in the passion, when you're in the moment of those passions that cause a tragedy, you simply aren't going to listen to the solutions. But even so, there is wisdom, and I'm going to do my little best to speak some of that wisdom into the situation we find ourselves in. When you look in the mirror, do you see dark spots? They're not going away on their own. You need help from Genucel's Dark Spot Corrector. The Dark Spot Corrector has not one, but three cutting-edge ingredients and goes to work fast on sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, and even old discoloration both on your face and hands. You'll be amazed at how quickly you'll see results. You can now enjoy summer sun, beach, and barbecues without embarrassing spots. With Genucel, you'll see the results or your money back, no questions asked. Go to Genucel.com slash Clavin right now. Get your dark spot corrector with the new Genucel most popular package and say goodbye to those pesky spots tomorrow. They're offering free shipping, free returns, and the best luxury skincare you've ever used, all at 70% off. All orders will also include a mystery luxury gift while supplies last. That's genucel.com slash Clavin. I know you're eager for this, but you're just wondering, how am I supposed to get this if I don't know how to spell Clavin? Good question. The answer, K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, let's start with chapter one, No Peace We'll Find. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. Now, before I get to this, the grotesque cynicism and wickedness of this Georgia indictment of Trump and his law team, uh, I want to remind you of a few unpopular things I've said so you understand not just that I'm always right, which I think you already know, but that you understand my overall viewpoint, that what I'm saying today is in keeping with my overall viewpoint. One of the things that I said is when Trump had uh, people chanting about Hillary Clinton, lock her up, lock her up, I came on and said, no, that's not what we want to do. We do not want to live in a country where presidents and people in authority are persecuting and imprisoning the people, their, their rivals. That's not the kind of country we want to live in, even if we get passionate, even if we're angry. I know people, there's no one who's above the law and all this stuff, but sometimes you, you let the edges get a little bit foggy because you want to protect 
your, your country. You want to protect the system that you're in. Also, my first show after January 6th, I told you that Trump screwed the pooch. That may have been the most unpopular thing I ever said. I probably lost more audience that day than I have any other time. I told you that he became what the left accused him of being, that he had acted badly, uh, and that his insistence that the election was stolen uh, was going to cost us Georgia, which it then proceeded to do. That's exactly what happened. And of course, the one I know you all love so much, which is that I'm not convinced the election was stolen. I'm not saying it wasn't stolen. I'm simply saying that you have to be able to prove it in a court of law before you overturn an election because you don't want your elections, the elections you won, overturned simply because people saw something on Twitter that has absolutely convinced them that the election was stolen. You know, you need evidence. You got to go into a court. Now, in each case, in each of those cases, more than one person wrote to me and said, I, I know you're right, but you shouldn't have said it because I didn't want to hear it. And that's what I'm talking about today is tragic passion when you know in your heart that somebody is telling you the truth, but you simply cannot listen to it because you're just that angry and, and possibly you're righteously angry. Your anger may be righteous. Don't get me wrong about this. I'm not saying your anger is wrong. I'm simply saying that it's carrying you away to a place that is destructive. So in keeping with my same outlook, I want to tell you that this indictment in Georgia is an absolute disgrace. Here is the Fulton County prosecutor uh, in Georgia, Fannie Willis, uh, making an absolute fanny of herself. This is cut three. Georgia, like every state, has laws that allow those who believe that results of an election are wrong, whether because of intentional wrongdoing or unintentional error, to challenge those results in our state courts. The indictment alleges that rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. I want you to think about the fact, remember what I'm talking about is when passions are stirred up, when people need revenge, when people feel that they've been wronged, it's very hard to turn the corner and get back to a place where we are not enemies but friends. And we remember that we must not be enemies because the results of that are just too horrifying to face. Just remember, this is a county prosecutor. There are over 3,000 counties in this country. Last time I looked, it was like 3,100 counties. Do you think that there is no Republican county prosecutor somewhere who is just waiting for the chance to indict her political enemy the way this woman is doing? This is not the sort of uh, person who should be making a charge against the presidential candidate. And the charges based on a RICO statute, a a statewide Georgia RICO statute, which means that all you have to have is a conspiracy. You don't actually have to have the crime, prove the crime is being committed. You have to prove that people were conspiring. And what she is saying is that Donald Trump and his legal team, in feeling that the election was stolen and feeling that the election was unfair and trying to show that and trying to show that to the people, were committing a criminal conspiracy. I mean, listen to some of the charges, some of the detailed charges. On or about the third day of December 2020, Donald Trump caused to be tweeted from his Twitter account, wow, blockbuster testimony taking place right now in Georgia, ballot stuffing by Dems when Republicans were forced to leave the large counting room. Plenty more coming, but this alone leads to an easy win of the state. This, the indictment says, this, this tweet was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. This is the sort of thing they're talking about. And I have to admit to you that I take this a little personally because one of the people indicted is my friend Jenna Ellis. And what she's essentially being indicted for is attending press conferences, doing what lawyers do, going before public meetings. This is the other thing. A conspiracy is usually carried out 
in secret. These were public meetings that Jenna went to to argue. So I asked Jenna if she would be kind enough to come on. I know she can't. Uh, Jenna was formerly, obviously, the attorney for Donald Trump. I know uh, she can't talk about the case itself, but I just wanted to see her. Jenna, welcome to the show. How, how are you? Listen, first of all, I want to say that as a Rico, you know, gangster conspirator, I'm really happy that you came unarmed, uh, that you didn't bring a Tommy gun into my studio. I appreciate that. How are you doing? Yeah, I didn't wear my fedora or any of my other, you know, mobster <laughs> paraphernalia uh, today, Drew. But so maybe next time. Yeah, um, but you know. Keep a sense of humor here, and I appreciate that. And you know, it may sound strange, but I'm actually doing really well. Um, the outpouring of love and support, particularly from God's people and the Christian church from across the world in the last week, has just been incredibly amazing. And uh, for me, uh, you, you and I talk about our mutual Christian faith uh, so often. And for me, this is an opportunity on a national stage to really apply my faith as. Uh, believers have in other circumstances uh, far more serious than mine throughout world history and church history to stand firm on the promises of God. And so I am resolved to trust the Lord through this process, to have joy in all circumstances, whether it's uh, good or bad or whatever comes. And uh, like the political persecution before me of my former client, John MacArthur, who at every step of the way, he resolved to trust the Lord and say, what does the Lord have for us next? He told me, Jenna, you're going to learn a lot about God's sovereignty through this process. And now when I'm the one who is being uh, politically persecuted and, uh, and, and this is completely unfair, I'm resolved to be a witness insofar as I can, like he and other Christians before me have uh, shown me. You know, I have to say, because I see how much hate you get on social media, frequently from, from Trump people, interestingly enough, after you really put yourself on the line for Trump and to do the work of being his attorney. You've been on the show a number of times and you have not once have you ever said anything to me that was uh, even suspect, even at times when you were saying things that Trump Trump people didn't like while you were representing Trump, telling them the truth that the election was not going to be overturned, that it was not going to be uh, canceled out, which all turned out to be the case. You know, it's, it just seems to me that what you were doing, if you had been representing a murderer, and you kind of suspected the murderer was guilty, but he kept saying he was innocent. You would have had to go before a court and say, my client is innocent. You could have been indicted under the standards of this indictment. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. They're basically making being a lawyer illegal. Yeah, they are criminalizing uh, the practice of law and they are criminalizing the First Amendment protected right uh, that we all have to petition the government for redress. And this is an amazing moment in America's history that we can see that the practice of law is being uh, is under siege in this country. And if your political opponent is disfavored, then somehow you're part of a criminal enterprise uh, for simply defending your client and uh, being a zealous advocate. And so this is something that I think regardless of whether people love or hate Donald Trump, whether they uh, whatever they feel about him, they need to feel loyalty and passion for our country's freedoms, for the U.S. Constitution, for the rule of law and for the profession of law. Uh, this is a moment where I think people need to stop and put aside political differences and understand what's really going on here. You know, the, the Bible says, put not your faith in princes. And I think that sometimes when you 
follow a person instead of an idea, instead of an ideal, you really get messed up. It, it is, it's disturbing. You know, you've, you've had to raise money for a defense fund. I mean, you're not a rich person. This is not something that you can just take out of your pocket. Uh, and as you tried to do that, and I tweeted that, uh, that out, what is, I, I'm sorry, what's the name of the site where you, you're doing it? Give, send to go forward slash uh, support Jenna. So it's and, give, send to go, which is the conservative alternative to GoFundMe. Right. And I saw Trump supporters saying no, because you've kind of decided that DeSantis is a better candidate for the next go around than Trump, which is something the conservative might well decide. You know, we all disagree about who the candidate might be, but we don't disagree about what we want. I'm friends with uh, Gorka. He loves Trump and he knows that I'm uh, much more unsure. But we both want the same things. It's incredible to watch the Trump people turn on you that viciously. Yeah. And, and I think what's so fascinating is that my colleague, uh, Alan Dershowitz, who also represented uh, Donald Trump during the first sham impeachment, um, he's a Democrat openly and he didn't even vote for Trump. He openly said that he's voting uh, for Joe Biden. But in his capacity as counsel to his client, uh, he showed the same loyalty of uh, fiduciary responsibilities of loyalty and lawyering to his client that you would expect. And yet, uh, the definition of loyalty here is not as an American to the U.S. Constitution, as a lawyer to the professional rules of responsibility. It's somehow this notion that uh, we have to be more loyal to an individual uh, than we are to the principles of the U.S. Constitution and ultimately to conservatism. And I'm that's not how I work. I am a principled person and I am a Christian. And so therefore, my loyalty is going to be to God, to the U.S. Constitution, to my country. And then I'm going to exercise my vote in the best way possible. And in my profession, of course, I'm going to be loyal to clients. Um, but but I am not going to uh, just say anything on social media to appease the mob. It reminds me, Drew, of you know of the Sneeches in the book, um, in the Dr. <laughs> Seuss book, where it's like, wh where are my haters today? Everybody's going, and, do they have a star? Do they not? Do they like Jenna? Do they not? Because it's like they're going around, and no matter what I say today, um, they're going to call me, either love me or hate me or call me different names uh, based on what I've said. And like you, I have remained principles. I mean, I, I remember last year when I was saying uh, and I, on your show that I supported the Disney company remember, against remember. unconstitutional First Amendment retaliation. I was called a groomer. I was called all kinds of things because I was going against Governor DeSantis. And now suddenly that I say he's the best Republican governor in the country and I support him as a candidate. Now, suddenly um, all of those snitches are taken off their, you know, go Jenna stars and they're saying, <laughs> OK, you know, so, so I'm not going to do anything that requires me to uh, to say I want to appease the mob. I'm going to remain principled, love me or hate me, I don't care, because ultimately I answer to God. You know, as I say, you've always been honest on this show, and I appreciate it, and I know you've, this is the first interview you've done uh, outside of your own show, and I appreciate it, Jenna. It's great to see you. You're in my prayers. I know you're going to be all right. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Drew. And thanks so much for tweeting that link because it is really uh, difficult to be in the position of yeah. having to raise a lot of money for a legal defense. So thank you. All right. So now, as always, I mean, I don't see how people can stop being angry at things like this. This is such an abuse of law. Now, as always, the news media makes things a hundred times worse because they are all one-sided. Just as as a flashback here, here is the news media and other Democrats reacting to Trump's DOJ threatening to investigate Hunter Biden and malfeasance by the Bidens. Uh, this is cut four. 
Bill Barr, on the president's behalf, is weaponizing the Justice Department to go after the president's enemies. When you win an election, you don't seek to just prosecute the losing side. The president using the Justice Department as a weapon to get what he wants. Department of Justice is totally politicized. Sticking the Department of Justice on political opponents. Threatening to imprison his political rival, Banana Republic style. Trying to exact revenge against all of his enemies. Tin pot dictator in a Banana Republic. Is acting more like a Banana Republic dictator. He's using government resources to go after his political opponent. Um, essentially, we are a Banana Republic. That we are... We are um, seeking to have a bogus in criminal investigation into a political opponent. And that's using the Department of Justice to also target Trump's political opponent for nefarious reasons. This is a massive abuse of power and a betrayal of our value. Okay, and here is Rachel Maddow, who w- was saying exactly the same things right after the Georgia indictment. It's cut five. The system of democracy at its heart is the idea that the people get to decide how we are governed. And if we if we no longer believe that our will is effectuated through the system, if bad actors tell us falsely that every election is stolen and that the only way an election is uh, trustworthy is if they come out on top of it, um, then something it's, it, it tells you something not just about that person or that moment. It maybe wounds us as a democracy and in a way that is hard to repair. (laughs) Who's she talking to? She's talking to Hillary Clinton. Here's cut six. The lack of trust, the divisiveness, the undermining of faith in ourselves, in each other, uh, respect for our institutions, uh, the rule of law. All of that has been deliberately inculcated within our body politic. This is Hillary Clinton talking, who had her minions bring this phony steel document to the FBI, who then investigated Trump for Russian collusion as if the election had been stolen by the Russians. And here is Hillary and other Democrats talking about that election cut seven. He knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. Votes remain to be counted. There are voices that were waiting to be heard. And I will not concede. There are still legitimate concerns over the integrity of our elections and of ensuring the principle of one person, one vote. I agree with tens of millions of Americans who are very worried that when they cast the ballot on an electronic voting machine, that there is no paper trail to record that vote. How do Republicans not respond in rage? The rage is bad. We're not enemies, but friends. Most of the people in this country could sit down together and talk and reason things out. This is coming from the top. And yet we're only human. How can we not respond with rage? You know, Lincoln is right. We must not be enemies. But how do you pack up the tragic passions that have been unleashed by this sort of justice? And that's not all. Are you a few years or as in my case, a few centuries out of school and wondering what the heck did I even learn and what was the point and where am I? You might think to yourself that you don't have the time to learn something new. If that's you, know this, you're not alone and it's not too late. Since 1844, my friends at Hillsdale College have been providing education in faith, freedom, and character. And I mean, I was friends with them back then. They've taken some of the core classes they teach on campus and made them available for free online for anyone who wants to learn. That is right, for free. There are 39 free 
free courses to choose from, ranging from the U.S. Constitution. I took that one. It was terrific. The Book of Genesis, Free Market Economics. They're easy to follow and they're self-paced, so you can start whenever you want. In fact, you can start right now. It's everything you need all in one place with no long-term commitment. Let Hillsdale College be your guide. Learn when and where you want. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash Clavin to enroll. There's no cost and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash Clavin to register. Hillsdale.edu slash Clavin. Although first you have to take the course on how to spell Clavin. And here it is. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no Chapter two, the beast is loose. Release the Kraken. (laughs) You know, the self-blindness of the left, I call them elites without mirrors. This idea, they have this idea that they're protected because the press envelops them in this sense of protection. And it makes them feel that no one is ever going to take power away from them. You know, you remember. So they think they're never going to have to pay the price for the injustices and the recklessness with which they're treating the law and with which, with, with which they're treating our system. By the way, I've criticized Trump a lot for his, his ill manners and the way he treats people and the way he talks about people. That's reckless too, but this is far worse because they're using the levers of power to basically not just attack Trump, but the millions and millions and tens of millions of people that they hate and they deplore who voted for him and they think they'll never have to pay the price. Remember when they... Uh, took away the the need for a two-thirds majority in confirming federal judges. And Mitch McConnell stood up and he said, you're going to regret this and sooner than you might think. And then Donald Trump took them by, shocked them by winning the election. And, and Mitch McConnell said, okay, well, now we're going to have the same rule for Supreme Court justices. And they didn't like that very much, but they didn't think that was ever going to happen because the press gives them this aura of invulnerability, which is an illusion. Well, you know, and how do you think, how do you think wise people, you know, people who want to elevate, um, elevate the country above partis- the partisan divide and the hatred and all that stuff, how are they going to convince Republicans not to politicize the Department of Justice after watching what the DOJ has done with this Hunter Biden case? The fact they couldn't even admit that the cocaine uh, in the White House was Hunter's and the fact that they are now covering up Hunter Biden's malfeasance. And let's face it, Joe Biden was in this up to his butt. This is ridiculous. This is an influence peddling scheme that Joe Biden has been making money off of. And they keep saying there's not a not a shred of evidence. So just to recap for a minute, David Weiss, right? He is the United States attorney out of Delaware. He's an employee of the government. He investigated Hunter Biden for so long without taking action that the statute of limitations ran out on, on the major crimes, on a lot of the major crimes. And remember, this is job one. Every prosecutor knows to keep his eye on the statute of limitations. Now we have whistleblower testimony from IRS investigators that they were told not to extend their investigation to include Joe Biden. We now have just recently testimony from a former FBI agent that the Bureau was tipping off uh, Hunter Biden and President Biden's transition team about plans to interview uh, Hunter Biden and others so they could prepare themselves and so they could clean out so they knew there were searches coming and they could clean out storages, uh, storage facilities. We know that David Weiss and the DOJ made an unprecedented plea deal with Hunter Biden, unprecedented uh, plea deal with Hunter Biden's attorneys to avoid jail time on minor tax evasion and gun charges, which were almost all that was left after the statute of limitations ran out. And that deal, buried in that deal, was an immunity provision that 
the judge would not have been able to overturn once it was in place. And when the judge asked one question, the DOJ was so humiliated by its own corruption, it had to say, admit, it had to say, no, 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 there's no, uh, there is no immunity in there. And the entire deal fell apart. Now, this is how the news media and other Democrats covered Devin Archer's testimony that Biden was not just calling into Hunter uh, Hunter's business meetings to say, yes, 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 I'm part of the influence you are buying when you give my son money, but also sat down to dinner with people who were basically paying off Hunter Biden for reach to the vice president, which they got. Here is how that was covered by Democrats and the media. But I repeat myself, cut nine. Hunter Biden talked to his dad on the phone all the time. They talked basically every day. Sometimes Joe Biden would say hello to the people in the room if he popped in or on the phone or whatever. It's all casual conversation, niceties, the weather. They never discussed the business. These were more of just cordial hello types of conversations. Business was never discussed on those calls. And that was more casual sort of check-ins, casual conversations. President Biden might have said, hey, Quit putting me on speakerphone. Uh, you know, are, are you having a business meeting? Like, what, what is that about? But do you hang up on your phone, on your on your side? Bo Biden, Hunter's brother and President Biden's son, was very ill with cancer and then passed away. That, as the witness today testified, was what these conversations and these calls were about. And we should put this in context. This is a time when Bo Biden, the president's other son, was ill and then dying and then and then passed away. Very fraught and and sad time for the Biden family. So, I mean, this, you know, at the same time, Donald Trump is being indicted for anything they can think of. This is They might as well just show up at Republicans' houses individually and slap them in the face. That's how unjust, how unfair, how one-sided this is. Then, even so, even though the, the press is, as one, running cover for the Biden family, even so, it's getting to Joe Biden. There are reports that it's driving him crazy that Hunter is being investigated like he is. So, and the DOJ was just humiliated by the collapse of this plea deal. So Merrick, the Teflon Don Garland, has to get up and make this announcement. This is cut 10. I'm here today to announce the appointment of David Weiss as a special counsel, consistent with the Department of Justice regulations governing such matters. In keeping with those regulations, I have today notified the designated members of each House of Congress of the appointment. In February 2018, after being nominated by the former President and confirmed by the Senate, Mr. Weiss was sworn in as the United States Attorney for the District of Delaware. Mr. Weiss had been a career prosecutor, having served previously in the office for more than a decade. The appointment of Mr. Weiss reinforces for the American people the Department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. I am confident that Mr. Weiss will carry out his responsibility in an even-handed and urgent manner and in accordance with the highest traditions of this department. He says, I can't believe this guy. This is unbelievable. I mean, truly a slap in the face. He says this is in keeping with DOJ regulations. Here's what the regulation says about special counsel. An individual named a special counsel should be a lawyer with a reputation for integrity and impartial decision-making. The special counsel shall be selected from outside the United States government. Not only is Weiss inside the United States government, and he's a federal prosecutor, he's, he's inside the DOJ. He's on the case. He's the guy who's on the case. He's the guy who let the statute of limitations run out. He's the guy who made this plea deal. It was so embarrassing. They couldn't even own it in court when they were asked 
a single question. So basically, this guy had the face to show up with his face hanging out in front of the American people and say, you will now be reassured because I am appointing the guy who blew this case in the first place. I am now appointing him to the special counsel to make sure this case isn't blown. When corruption is this despicable, when it's this open and this arrogant and apparent and unhidden, how is wisdom supposed to override the anger of people who are offended? I know you write to me all the time and I say, rise above your anger. Don't lock up Hillary Clinton. I don't care if she violated the law. It's a bad look when you put your leaders in prison unless they've done something so bad that it can't be reconciled any other way. But how can I say that to you? How can I say that to you when you're being slapped in the face by Merrick Garland? Like, you know, it's unbelievable. We're not enemies, but friends, I swear, the American people, I bet 70% of us at least could get together and sit down and agree on 70% of the issues or at least compromise, find a way to compromise. We must not be enemies. But how can we contain the passions of this increasingly tragic situation, this increasingly inevitable clash we're in? If this is the face of injustice. If the face of justice is also the face of injustice and basically telling us that we are not going to be treated fairly at all. Hiring someone doesn't need to be hard. I know it can be exhausting, long, and expensive. That's why we don't do it here. We just use the people who are passing by. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter is a hiring partner who is focused on you and your needs. ZipRecruiter knows how tough it is, but they figured out solutions for the problems you're facing. See for yourself. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. To reach more of the right people, ZipRecruiter posts your job to 100-plus job sites. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds great matches for your job and then lets you invite the most qualified people to apply. Their pricing is straightforward. You can stick to your budget with no surprises. Team up with ZipRecruiter a hiring partner who understands what you need. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire if you're smart enough to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Chapter three, you're under arrestees. Arrest? I don't feel like I'm under arrest. We're talking about the rule of law, our need to trust in the rule of law, and the social contract, which really is the reason for the rule of law. The idea of the social contract is in a state of nature, someone is going to acquire a lot of power, and so ultimately you end up giving some of your freedom away to the government for protection from the powerful people who would bully and oppress you. And inherent in that is the need for the rule of law. It is captured at the very start of Western civilization in plays by Aeschylus uh, that are called, usually called the Oresteia uh, from ancient Greece. And so I wanted to talk to somebody who actually knows something about ancient Greece and can read uh, Greek faster than I can read English, although that's not saying much. So I turned to my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation, uh, who is actually a PhD uh, from Oxford in the classics. I was inspired from hearing stories of your time in ancient Greece growing up. Aeschylus, <laughs> <laughs> he learned was a great more. guy. We yeah, drank yeah. together all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Orisaia is a very complex play. It's yes. a very beautiful, I, I, a complex trilogy of plays, really. Yeah. But it talks about the beginning of law. Right. So 
Tell us a little bit about the story and, and what, what it's about, well, about, how it gets to that point. You know, we think of the Athenians now as the inventors of democracy. This is kind of their tagline in, in modern history. But in the ancient world, for a lot of people, democracy was actually kind of a bad word. This was an accusation that the rabble was going to be making kind of mob rule decisions. Um, if you talk to the Athenians themselves, they might well have prided themselves most, not on democracy, but on isonomia, which is a Greek word that means equality before the law. It's the first time, really, that that concept is made explicit that I'm aware of in history. And whenever these things emerge, you always have to ask, well, compared to what? What's the state that they're emerging out of? And the state that they're emerging out of is the state of blood guilt, this kind of natural association of clans fighting with one another. And it's that endless cycle of retribution that Aeschylus Oresteia begins with. Any good tragedy begins with an impossible situation or leads to an impossible crisis. Orestes, who's after whom the Oresteia is named, returns home to discover that his mother has murdered his father. And this places him under two contradictory moral imperatives under the blood guilt system. He must avenge his father's murder, but he must not kill his mother. And so by avenging the murder, he finds himself kind of trapped in this like glitch in the blood guilt system so that this endless cycle of retribution becomes untenable. And he's actually walking into part of that cycle because yes. Agamemnon has already sacrificed uh, his wife's daughter yes, to, exactly. to go fight the war in Troy. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the observations, the brilliant observations that Aeschylus is making is that this, from within this system, justice always looks like it's going to be done with the next murder. But when you look at the system from outside, as a spectator does at a play, you begin to realize that the murder is actually just part of the cycle, that every time you, for instance, demand reparations for previous injustices, you end up creating more injustices that then demand more. And so this, this notion of revenge as the driver of, of justice is this kind of primal situation that Aeschylus is depicting. And by making it impossible for us to deny, to ignore the contradictions in this system, he leads us into this magnificent, complex, difficult story that is almost like the chemical reaction that changes blood guilt into equality before the law. And it's taking that personal retribution out of the hands of the individual and placing it in the hands of the state, but in the hands also of the divine, right? That the idea that there will be an impersonal set of laws is where they end up with the jury courts that are ministered over by Athena, goddess of um, of wisdom and patron goddess of, of well, this, Athens, is, yeah. this is what happens at the end of this right. trilogy is Athena, the goddess of wisdom, actually shows up and yes. establishes this. Yes. Now, not everybody's happy about that. Right. I mean, brilliantly, Aeschylus does not wrap this thing up into this beautiful bow. He shows that there's a cost to entering into this system. First of all, Athena herself gets to cast the deciding vote. And so we see that it's always going to be human personalities, right? Anthropomorphic individuals, jury members, judges that are going to have to enter into this system and, and bring their personal humanity there. And importantly, we're going to have to discard the desire for retribution. And that desire is, in some sense, a very natural desire. That, I mean, it's the most natural reaction. Right. You know, you hit me, I hit you back. And so the idea that you might turn the other cheek, that you might forgive, let go of your desire for endless retribution, um, which comes to us, of course, from the Christian tradition, but is expressed here in the end of blood guilt. Um, this is expressed mythologically in the transformation of the Furies, the goddesses of vengeance and blood guilt, 
into the Eumenides, the kindly ones who live in a cave under the city. And as long as they're respected, as long as we understand that they're there, but also keep them at bay, civilization can, can flourish. So this is like of key importance, yeah, that yeah, this yeah. force that we all feel, yes. we all feel you did it to me, I'm doing it to you, it's too late, you know. I mean, in, in Romans uh, 14, Paul says, mm-hmm. don't, don't take revenge, vengeance belongs to God. And God says in the Old Testament, vengeance is mine. Yes, I will repay. I will, I will repay. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it will come about, you know, like karma almost, mm-hmm. but it's, it's more intentional. But that's a very, very difficult thing for the human heart to learn. And yes. so when the, the brilliant thing to me in transforming the Furies into the Humanities mm-hmm. is that it's, and burying them underground, mm-hmm. is it suggests almost this kind of Freudian steam building up yes. so that if this system fails, those passions, that passion for revenge is going to erupt. Yes. And one of the things that a philosopher that you and I talk about all the time, Rene Girard, mm-hmm. has this brilliant theory. And his theory is that we desire mimetically, he calls it mimetic desires, that right. if you have it and you value it, I'm going to want yes. it. That's the inverse of the revenge. That's right. The, That's, right. And, 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 we, and he even goes beyond this, essentially saying that, that all that desire is actually the desire for life. Yes. I mean, one of the things I've, I've noticed when so, uh, a, a little boy has a younger brother, yeah. the parents are always saying, oh, look, he wants to be just like you. Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? And that the older brother is going, I don't need anybody to be just like me. I am me. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right. I don't not, want that replacement going right. on. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the person who has the thing that is desired begins to protect it. Yes. And that tension of desire, uh, I want what you have, you want to protect what you have, builds and builds in a society. And Gerard talks really passionately mm. about the fact that we forget under a justice system, we mm. forget what blood guilt looks like yes. and, and how it can basically tear a society apart. I mean, it's like in Afghanistan, these tribes are fighting over rapes that may have happened <laughs> 500 years ago. Yeah, the Hatfields and the McCoys. The Hatfields right. and the McCoys. Like, yeah. These feuds go on forever. What, what is it, does, does Athena offer anything, have anything to say about that? Is there something that she is pain or she's just, she's the goddess and she's in charge. It's a terrifyingly ominous speech, a moment when she says, the streams of justice once contaminated will never again flow pure. Mm. And, and, and this is, I mean, we've talked a lot before about <coughs> Hans Castorp's dream in the Magic Mountain. Yes. Kind of a vision of the humanities. Um, and there are other instances of this. I think the ones who walk away from Omelas, that is another depiction of this. And in each one of those stories, what you have is a perfectly classical, beautiful society with flourishing technology, but also wonderful art and connection to the past, at the core of which there is a, an ugly, dirty scene of suffering and, and wrenching anguish. And I think that what this all communicates to us is that forgiveness and this the leaving aside of uh, retribution, which we all, as you say, feel, is, is not actually ultimately fair. It leaves us with these wounds that we have to contend with. And those are our choices, of course. We then live in a society where either we, we say that we will abide by the rule of law and we have to hobble along in this sin-ridden world with, these, with this pain that we, that we uh, internalize, that we leave aside, that we decide not to act upon, not to kind of act out the wounds that we carry with us. Or and it's always a temptation, it's ever there, we just, we simply let it 
out. We simply uh, refuse to follow the rule of law, and we just take what we know absolutely is ours. And of course, what then happens is we destroy ourselves in one another. We tear, our, tear ourselves apart. Those are our choices. You know, René Girard, who is a, a Catholic yeah. philosopher, points out that somehow in this system, when the tension grows too much, yes. when the sense that justice is not being done, when people forget why the courts are there and why we have ceded some of our freedom to the courts, mm. that the only way to relieve that tension is to pick a scapegoat. And his theory is basically that the scapegoat is then killed and then deified yes. because it has brought, killing the scapegoat has brought peace back into the society. And what he's saying underneath that is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a revelation of that system. Yes. So that instead of constantly returning to this idea, I must be paid, I must have reparations, you have to, you did this a hundred years ago and I'm gonna get you back for it. Right. Instead of doing that, we look to Christ and that is, is going to relieve the tension and yes. we act out that sacrifice again in the mass and that's you know part of what's going on uh, in the religion, not just the, uh, not just the release from sin, but the release from that particular sin yes. of looking for vengeance and, over and over. Yes, to, to be jailbroken out of that cycle, which we cannot find our way out of from within. I mean, this is one of the many ways in which I think a Christian observation can resolve inherent tensions in the pagan classical system. Because as we've just discussed, there is that knot at the heart of the, the rule of law. And what Gerard is saying is the Bible basically pulls us outside and allows us to see the system from the outside in, which we couldn't do otherwise because we're inside of it. But because Jesus becomes the sinless offering because he enters into the position of the scapegoat who takes on all the sins of the world, we suddenly realize that it's not actually about doing what's right, that our impulse is, a, is purely a blood impulse and not a righteous impulse because now we've, we can't deny that because we've done it to somebody that didn't deserve anything, the only person in the world that didn't deserve anything. And so now you, you begin to see, right, that this is, a, this is something demonic within you rather than something. It's a great insight because yeah. it goes all the way back to Genesis with Cain and yep. Abel, where God says his blood cries out to me from the ground. Yes. And so that this, these, the idea is essentially these murders, these wrongs, these uh, gre grievances that we all have with one another. Yes. They are being seen and we have to uh, relinquish some trust even from our society to right. God. In order and the, to the terrible truth is that if we want to acknowledge the reality of ourselves having been wronged, we also have to acknowledge the reality that we are implicated in the wrong somehow. Right, right. No, no man is right. And, and, there's, and there's no getting, you know, it's, it's really interesting. When you look at, at Sigmund Freud, I always felt that Freud was essentially trying to materialize Christianity. So instead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he has the id, the superego, and the ego. He and has many all, such cases. Many such cases, yeah, exactly. And, and one of the things he talks about is the eternal return of the repressed, hmm. so that anything that is pushed down in you uh, as a child, whether it's your sexual impulses or anything else, is going to come back yes. uh, to get you. And, and it's going to result in neurosis, it's going to result in pressure, or it could result in creativity. Mm -hmm. So repressed uh, erotic impulses may become art. Uh, you know, and it all depends on how well-adjusted you are. But it's interesting that under that system, which we've been living under in some ways, the materialist system now for quite a long time, I mean, really it's been getting, we've been becoming more and more materialist for 500 years, yes. I think. That, that under that system, you never do actually get away from the repressed. The yes. repressed is eternal, and there's absolutely no system for releasing it. And so instead of, instead of the idea that somehow we reenact 
in the mass, the, uh, the death of Christ, instead of that idea, is that we have to pull all forms of guilt and repression away yeah. so that if I suddenly think that I'm a woman, I can become a woman. If I have a, uh, some kind of fetish where I hurt people, well, that's okay. That's what, you know, as long as it's consensual, it's all fine. Right. But it's actually not working. <laughs> that's <laughs> a great point. I mean, the secret to this notion of sublimation, which is essentially what you're talking about, right, that we, we repress these things and then they somehow transmute. Right. Um, the... the Often unspoken premise there is that things in their rawest, most base form, that's what's most real. So the art, the love, the Great. poetry, yeah. the civilization is all a deflection or a misdirection. It's what we do because we can't face up to, can't bear to let loose the reality that it's at the core of civilization, which is muck and grime and sex and desire. And what's missing from that entire picture, it's not as if nobody ever observed before Freud that we can transform things, that are, the, the raw materials of our humanity can change into other things. But we didn't used to think that those raw materials were the last word on all that we are. And what was missing from the Freudian picture is the idea that rather than being repressed, something might be transfigured or placed under a natural righteous hierarchy. And really, the Christian view that we're talking about, it, you know, you need that God's eye view in order to be able to say it's not just that you're taking the true authentic self, which just wants to rip your neighbor's throat out, and you're maybe kind of prettying it up or distracting with some window dressing around it. It's that actually that is a, a, a broken, unformed, and an unready part, a raw part of you that now needs to be humanized through love and transformed into, into yeah, justice. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's right. And it also never occurred to Freud that maybe the thing being repressed is the desire for God. Maybe yes. that's being repressed underneath uh, our, our bodily impulses. You know, Athena was the goddess of wisdom, and the Romans uh, called her Minerva, and uh, obviously represented by the owl, that was her... It's because she got on their Minerva. Because she got on their Minerva. <laughs> wisdom is very annoying. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom is annoying. <laughs> but, but obviously her bird was the owl, and the philosopher Hegel said that the owl of Minerva, I'm paraphrasing, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, meaning you have to get a little bit older before you have, start to have wisdom. And so since I'm almost uh, at the end of the day myself, I thought I would start to try to inject a little bit of wisdom in this in our final. This show is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, but no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and take their sleep quiz to find the mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has just the mattress for you. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix midnight mattress because I wanted a medium firmness and I sleep on my side. I am sleeping so much better on my new mattress. Don't want to take my word for it? Well, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, and you won't believe how well you'll sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and a free bedroom bundle for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. 
That's helixsleep.com slash dailywire, code helixpartner20. Final chapter, the owl of Minerva. As I say, there's a, an expression from the philosopher Hegel, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, meaning you have to get old before you have anything wise to say. Uh, it has to be the end of the day, essentially. And as I say, I'm just about at the, the end of the day. So let me try very briefly to answer the criticism that conservatives see the problem, but we don't suggest solutions. Because it's not really true. If you listen closely to the wisest conservatives, namely me and Ben, you can hear that, that many conservatives are saying very similar things. That the, all of them, basically, are saying that the solutions are local, that the things that have to be done to win back the country, to get out of this clash, this inevitable clash, this increasing rage, this increasing return to the system of vengeance instead of the system of law, to, get, to do that, you're going to have to start at the, the smallest levels. Now, I'm not talking about what is sometimes called the Benedict's option, where you just retreat from the world and build, rebuild a community. I think, and then you kind of live in defiance of the greater powers. What I think is you have to find solutions at the largest possible small level the largest possible level of localization. This is the original idea of the country, remember. Madison said that uh, America, even then, was too big to sustain a republic, but that he believed that that republic would be sustained because of the federal system in which each state has power. And so that's where, basically, some of these solutions have to come from. Yes, from the individual, yes, from the family, yes, from the community, from churches, but ultimately the powers that fight back are the powers of the state. You know, this is the idea, you know, the, the idea of states' rights, as it's sometimes called, was undermined by the holding of slaves because states' rights were one of the claims that the slaveholders made. But you can use good systems to defend bad things. That's true of every system. Every, every system can be used to defend bad things. The idea of keeping power within the states and letting the states fight back against D.C., which is why we are supposed to have guns so we can form militias, is still a good one. Now, D.C. is doing everything it can to override the power of the states. They basically uh, say, oh, here's some money, but if you take the money, then you have to do what we want you to do. You have to castrate and uh, give your children you know, hysterectomies. Uh, corporations threaten to boycott states if they don't let men dress as women into women's restrooms and basically monopolies of information like YouTube silence you if you say that men can't become women, which they cannot. But the people can strike back. I mean, this boycott of Target for selling children's transgender gear. You know, the press keeps saying, oh, it was a a pride backlash. Well, the hell you say? It was not a pride backlash. They were selling children deviant sexual material and material that encouraged trying to change your sex, which you cannot do. And you can't change your gender either because it means the same thing. Same with Bud Light. They felt our wrath, and we have to keep doing that. We should never be afraid, never be ashamed to act at the smallest level. Uh, that wonderful song that came out, Oliver Anthony, Rich Men North of Richmond, this, this got attacked by National Review, which really, I mean, National Review was a wonderful magazine, gave me, helped give me a voice as a conservative, wonderful writers there. They have gone so, become so Trump deranged that they are trying to break some kind of record for irrelevance. They're attacking this song because it wasn't positive enough. No, it was a plaint of the oppressed and it said everything it needed to say. 
Every voice that speaks the truth is our voice. National Review should remember that, even if that voice is Donald Trump. Every voice that speaks the, tr- the truth is the American voice. Tragedy operates at the highest level because that's where the ideas become diffuse. That's where people become passionate about individuals instead of saying, oh, this is my neighbor. I don't have to hate him. I can disagree with him. We can talk it out. And that is why we should operate at the at the smallest level because that's where people can get together. That's where people can talk. It's our it's our, the elites who have betrayed us. It's the experts who have failed us. It's the powers that be that are doing wrong. It is not the guy next to you who may vote Democrat, who may have more left-wing leanings than you. That's not your problem. You're, that's, that's your friend. That's your neighbor. And we know what we're supposed to do with our neighbors. In every house, in every town, in each faith community, in each state, we can start to do the small things that restore freedom and trust to the people That's how America got started. That's how the left started to destroy America by using the smallest places and infiltrating them. Conservatives who are, as I've said before, addicted to despair, they love to say, it's all over, give up hope. No, we're not, it's time to fight, it's time to revolt, it's all that. America can't be over. It can't be over, it can never be over because America is us, the living truth is past the foul leaders, the incompetent experts, dishonest news news media at the ground, ground level We are not enemies, but friends, we must not be enemies. Our reckless, greedy, and incompetent leaders are not the nations. We are. We have to be. We are the better angels. So Candace has just wrapped the 10-part series, Convicting a Murderer. You won't want to miss this. It's one of our most ambitious projects yet. You might think you're familiar with the Stephen Avery case and everything that happened in Manitowoc County. This is especially true if you watch Making a Murderer, but it turns out the filmmakers only told you part of the story. Coming soon, Candace Owens will unveil the shocking parts of Avery's story that were omitted in the Netflix series. I'm excited to present the Convicting a Murderer trailer. Check it out. This is a collect call from uh, Steve. an inmate at the Calumet County Jail. The man served 18 years in prison until DNA evidence cleared his name. The Two Rivers man was convicted of sexual assault in 1985, but exonerated with DNA evidence in 2003. So this is the infamous Avery Lott. Now, two years later, he again finds himself tied to a police investigation. Accused of murdering Teresa Holbuck on the Avery property. Stephen Avery's 16-year-old nephew admitted his involvement in the rape and murder of Teresa Holbuck. The car is discovered just around the bend. It was just this worldwide phenomenon. I think they framed this guy. I think he intended to crush the vehicle, but ran out of time. Avery thinks the $36 million lawsuit he filed is why he's being targeted in this investigation. 1021 at 24 Main Street. Do we have Stephen Avery custody? Netflix made millions of dollars from making a murderer, but the filmmakers left out very important details. Mountains of evidence that you have not yet seen. The blood vial. The most egregious manipulation from the movie. Interrogations. That's when he started beating me because I told him that he's sick. Cell phones. And I saw melted plastic parts of a cell phone. Interviews. Her arms were pinned behind her head. They made Stephen Avery look like a victim. You believe your brother's guilty? I don't know if I'm a suspect. I got on eye. I'm getting sick and tired of media deception. Evidence piling up. Why would they omit so many different things? Why are you editing my testimony? I am not going to make the same mistake that the filmmakers did. Rearranging the testimony, 
They delete a portion of it at the end. How could they claim to care about the truth? They all know that Steve and Avery committed this crime. The evidence forces me to conclude that you are the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. To get the rest of the story, you have to watch Convicting a Murderer coming to you this September. This 10-part series is exclusive to Daily Wire Plus. So join now at dailywire.com slash subscribe to get 25% off your new annual membership so you can watch Convicting a Murderer when it premieres. You do not want to miss it. Also, the second annual Daily Wire Fantasy Football Draft Party is coming up soon. And this year, we have a sweepstakes for you to enter to be the 10th member in our league. If you win, you would participate with us during the live draft and go head-to-head with your favorite Daily Wire host throughout the fantasy football season. And if you win, you'll disappear without a trace. To enter, go to Crane Company's YouTube page and subscribe to their channel. Then like the Daily Wire Fantasy Football Sweepstakes video. Comment your fantasy football team name, and fill out the Google form on the pinned comment. Do not miss your chance to play fantasy football in your favorite host league and compete for ultimate bragging rights and the coveted Golden Tumbler. The sweepstakes are now open and will end August 19th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. Clavin Clapbacks. And guess what? Bidenomics is working. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to whisper, Bidenomics is working. All right, from Tony, dear Mr. Clavin, I heard your take on the Barbie movie. I must respectfully disagree with one aspect of your review. The America Ferrera monologue, I believe, was never intended to be an attack on patriarchy. I guess what I am saying is, despite the fact that I believe deeply that if Michael Knowles were to ever gain real power, that he would fire up the Inquisition again, I kind of side with him. On this one, first of all, that should, uh, Tony, that should be a giveaway. The minute you side with Michael Knowles, a little bell should go off in your head. You know, I remembered her saying in that speech, because of the, of the patriarchy, at one point, I went back and looked at what I have of the script, which is not the final script, uh, and she doesn't say that, but it still is, there is a lot of um, blaming of the patriarchy in the film. And the, the, my point about that speech, though, is that the entire film posits that the, a woman's need to be seen and loved, which I think is built into her personality because it is built into the way that we reproduce and the way that we mate and the way that mothers bond with their children. The entire film is positing that that is uh, a socially constructed fact. Ken becomes just like that because he's living in a matriarchy. But I just simply don't think that's true. I think that that is built in to women and the answer to it is to find if you want somebody to look at you and love you, find a decent, good man who will look at you and love you, and then that that need will be fulfilled, and then have a baby, and that need will be fulfilled. And I think the whole movie is false in that respect. However, the other thing about the movie is that Knowles is wrong about it. It's not a good movie. It's just not that good. It's not that well-written. It's not that well-made. Uh, it's very beautiful, but the music isn't good. The jokes aren't that funny. So that's uh, that's what I'm saying. All right. Uh, from Joseph, uh, I disagree that nudity in art is not always pornographic. As a young man recovering from porn addiction, the human form is beautiful. Sounds just like I go to Hooters for the wings. Why else would you go to Hooters? Uh, Can't art connoisseurs just admit they have a lust problem? Now, I I don't agree with you about this. And the fact that you actually 
can't even spell out the word porn, but put an asterisk as if it were God, sort of shows you what porn is. It's a form of idolatry. Uh, if you are addicted to porn, you should make sure that you stay away from that, just like if you're addicted to alcohol, you shouldn't have a glass of wine. But not every glass of wine leads to drunkenness, and that's what I'm, I'm saying. There is a way to appreciate the body um, without its being pornographic. I do believe that having an actress undress may, in fact, that may, in fact, be a wrong act. That's very different. But, but every uh, art, work of art that deals with the human body is not, in fact, pornographic. Uh, from Elena, even though I've just recently started watching your show, I love the insight you have on topics. I'd never heard the description of femininity that you made on the show today of having to be seen by a man. My question is, I know you're not Catholic, but how would that vision fit with religious women who choose to live in celibacy and give up marriage for serving God and other People, it's a really good question. If you, you know, I'm an Anglican Catholic, and John Paul's um, theology of the body sort of posits. Um, I've read more of theology of the body than anybody who says they've read it because it's almost unreadable. But I also read descriptions of it. Uh, basically, posits that some people are given the gift of turning all their erotic impulses toward God. I am so far from being like that that I I can't even imagine it. And I believe that we have to approach the thing that all desires. I believe that all desires are, are the desire for God, and we have to approach the things approach the things we desire uh, as as if they were God and treat them. Uh, not as if they were God, but as if they were a path to God, as if they were a metaphor for God, just like the bread and wine become the body of God. So that way we treat everything with respect and love and do not become enamored and uh, do not turn the representative of something into the thing itself, which is idolatry. When you build a statue, there's nothing wrong with having a crucifix, but if you believe the crucifix is the Lord, then you have uh, become an idolater. And that's the way I think we have to deal with everything. We should love the things that are lovable and beautiful and good in the world, including sex, which is a wonderful gift. But we shouldn't turn that into our God, and we should understand that we are serving God even in our relationships. But uh, yes, I, I believe, I will have to say, I believe with uh, John Paul II that there must be people who have the gift for turning all their erotic impulses to God. I'm not one of them. All right. You know, to become a member, first of all, Clavin Clapbacks is Clavin Clapback, spelled with a K at dailywire.com. Send us your reactions to the show, your opinions, whether you agree with me or are wrong. We want to hear from you. Also, become a member so you don't get dumped into the Clavenless eternity right after the Claven clapbacks. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code Claven at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Now you are plummeting into the darkness, but members come over to Member Block.